Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be delving into Egolanak and the Mythos Tome, The Revelations of Glarky. Before we get into all that unwholesome stuff, however, what is going on? Well, I understand, Scott, you've been playing some proper storytelling games. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I have guested recently on the Old Ways podcast, not on their main Court of Cthulhu arc, however, but on the Blood Moon Rising Vampire the Masquerade arc that's being run by a good friend, Rena Henze. This is a contemporary Vampire the Masquerade game set in San Francisco. And Rena basically asked me to come on and play an absolute bastard. So I did. And I've had a great deal of fun with that. The first appearance of the NPC I'm playing is out now, or at least should be out now. It's not out now at the time of recording, but it should be by the time this goes out. And then the full appearance will turn up on the 12th of August, so not too long. What do you make of this, Matt? Scott playing vampire, this is very much your territory. Oh, yeah, but I was thinking when he said playing a complete nutter bastard, anyone that's read any scenario ever by Scott and seen any NPC that he's ever created will know that this is not a stretch. <laughs> yes. I mean, again, pretty much your territory as well, Matt. But okay. <laughs> hey, my NPCs are nice guys. Yeah, but the characters you play, I was thinking. <laughs> so what if I blow shit up? There's no problem there. <laughs> Basically, Rena asked me to play a very old member of the Camarilla, a Ventru, who's coming to town to lay down the law. And so, yes, I had a great deal of fun being uh, problematic. And if voicing one NPC weren't enough... I've also made a guest appearance recently on Pretending to be People, where, well, <laughs> our good friends there decided that they needed someone to voice Beck Wilder's mother for a few scenes. And, of course, they thought of me. I'll put a link in the show notes to the episode in question, which I believe is called Print Shop, and I hope listening to it proves as weird for you as it was for me to record. And now on to our main topic, Egolanak and the Revelations of Glarky. So last episode, we looked at Ramsey Campbell's deity Glarky. But this only told half his story, really, because Glarky is known to all of us through his revelations, this weird mythos tome that exists in a number of forms and seems to be really quite different than most other mythos tomes. The revelations are also linked to another Campbell deity, Egolanak. So how do all these pieces fit together, and how might we use them in our games? You know, whenever I hear Egolanak, I have to think about the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, Scary Solstice Carol, because it's just so, so catchy. Bingo! We were making a bet, me and Scott, on how quick it would be until you mentioned that song, which is great. We love it too. Feliz Navidad. Which I didn't really know that Christmas carol before I heard the Scary Solstice album from HPLHS. So now whenever I hear that track, I just think it sounds wrong because it doesn't have, you know, the proper words in inverted commas. In his hands, he's got orifices. If you don't have this album in your collection, people, when it comes to like the festive season, then you really need to get it. Since we recorded this episode, we've been in contact with our good friends at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and they have very generously given us permission to include S.E. Golanak at the end of this episode. So do keep listening after the end credits for a special treat. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here because we're starting off talking about the revelations of Glarky. And ahead is something we definitely don't want to get <laughs> if we're talking about Egolanak. But yes, 
Yeah, so the Revelation of the Garki, a mythos tome, first turned up in Campbell's The Render of Veils story, where it contains a ritual to contact Daeloth, who I believe we talked about in a previous episode. We did, yes. I was actually kind of surprised when I double-checked this because I was absolutely convinced that the revelations of Glarky first turned up in the Inhabitant of the Lake. But no, I checked the timelines and the render of the veils was written just before the Inhabitant of the Lake. So that is the origin. Hmm. I think the, yeah, the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, I think, has it down as the Inhabitant of the Lake has been the origin story. Hmm. It's the first story that actually fleshes out the book at all. It's there as just a plot device in The Render of the Veils that gives them that ritual. And then it turns up as well as a plot device in a couple of stories that came shortly after, The Plane of Sound and The Mine on Yugoth. But it's the inhabitant of the lake that really tells us what the revelations of Glaki are. But then it turns up again in cold print, connecting the tome to the deity Golanak, who we'll discuss shortly. Cold print came a little bit after these stories. The four stories we mentioned before were all part of the inhabitant of the lake and less welcome tenants. But cold print was published in 1969, some five years later. The defining story for the revelations, however, is Campbell's 2013 novella, The Final Revelation of Glarki. So, skipping forward quite a few years there, in mm. which Lionel Fairman, a university archivist, visits Gullshaw, a northern coastal town in search of the last surviving set of the revelations. The volumes are scattered across town. Yes, they certainly are in a most curious way. And Fairman must visit various local notables to retrieve them. There is something strangely ritualistic about this chase. He starts off thinking that his first appointment where he's agreed to get the book is going to be the whole collection of nine tomes. But he goes and he receives the book and he's like, yes, that's good. Have you got, you know, the other eight? And the guy's like, no, sorry, you'll have to go and see somebody else for that. So then he goes to see the next person thinking maybe they've got the rest. And it's <laughs> like, no, actually, you need to go and see, you know, Mrs. Miggins at the pie shop now. <laughs> Every time it's like somebody else in town that like runs the the the, the children's uh, crash or the the old people's home or the theatre. And every time he just gets given one book, and he rings the next person up. It will be like, oh, sorry, you can't come now. Can I see you tomorrow morning? And he was only going to stay there one night, but now he's like staying. He ends up staying, I don't know, days and days to collect these various tomes. But, of course, this gives him time to read some of them, which does. is perhaps the point of the whole thing. I love the idea there of a person who runs a local daycare having a mythos tome and oh, having yes. access to all yeah. those little susceptible minds. Oh, that definitely comes up. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, this is a really creepy story. <laughs> Fairman, as he's reading these tomes and being exposed to them and the people who've got them and so on, just finds his perceptions of reality changing, his understanding of the books, his understanding of the world around him, and by the end of it, his body to some extent. Like most mythos tomes, the revelations of Glarky appears in a number of different editions. Tell me about it. There's quite a few of these things. Unusually, however, some of these are handwritten, as seen in The Inhabitant of the Lake. It was an old type of loose-leaf notebook, the pages covered with an archaic handwriting. The tome is a religious text, written by those transformed by Glarki's spines. This connects their minds to that of their god. These cultists authored the revelations in rare moments of consciousness. This makes the revelations of Glarki maybe unique as a tome drawn from the mind of a deity. Yes, directly from the mind of the god in the lake. Yeah, I was trying to work out whether there were any other examples of anything like this in the Cthulhu mythos. I suppose you could have people who were inspired to write... I can't remember whether the Rillier text was supposed to be written by humans or an alien race, but I guess those could have been inspired by the dreams of Cthulhu, but... This seems to be something a lot more intimate and direct. 
it did strike me when when I originally read Inhabitant the Lake that it was very much Campbell's take on the Allies, if the Necronomicon, that it seemed to be a figure, or well, figures in this case, had gone somewhere, communed with a being or entity, imparted knowledge, and then vanished. Mm. Obviously, we, we have a different take on that in The Inhabitant of the Lake. But it, yeah, it did strike me a lot like Abdullah Hazred, that he, because he'd gone to Iram, communed with the beings there, came back and then got ripped apart by invisible forces. It seemed to be, say, Campbell's version of that. But I think there's something fundamentally different here in that the authors of the Revelations of Glarkey are really vessels of Glarkey. It's not that they've just been inspired by exposure to the mythos and are transcribing the things that they've learned and putting their own spin on it. They are almost just the instruments for transmitting this knowledge. No, no, I agree. Like I say, he's taking it in a different direction entirely and very much made it his own thing. And I think when we get on to the gaming section, there's also a nice little twist on it in there as well that I uncovered. Hmm, cool. So the inhabitant of the lake tells us, This Revelations of Glarkey has been reprinted elsewhere, according to notes. Or perhaps I'd better say pirated. This, however, is the only complete edition. The man who managed to copy it down and escaped to get it printed didn't dare copy it all down for publication. The original handwritten version is completely fragmentary. It's written by the different members of a cult, and where one member leaves off, another begins, perhaps on a totally different subject. We often talk about how mythos tomes are difficult to read and understand, and perhaps disorganised in their structure, but this seems to take that to a whole different level. It's changing tack and changing subject all the way through. It seems like the kind of book you'd really have to decode, and perhaps... I guess it, it could almost read almost something like William Burroughs' Cut-Ups, where you've got all these different bits of information that have been remixed or, or reordered, and you perhaps have to go through and do some reordering yourself to actually get anything coherent out of them. And I think also in the story, The Last Revelations of Clarkey, the dialogue that is exchanged between Fairman and the residents of the town, a lot of that is quite cryptic. Mm. There's so much more to see, they love to say. <laughs> yes. A lot of the things they come out with on the surface don't directly, you know, they're not literal. So I think you'd find the same thing in the book. There'd be a lot of cryptic phrases you'd perhaps have to read and then reread in the context of what you've learned subsequently. That's how I interpret a lot of the study of mythos tomes. It's not that it takes 30 weeks to read it, whatever tome it might be. It's just that you have to read it again and again and cross-reference it with other texts and so on to get perhaps the deeper meaning. But it's probably worth pointing out that in The Last Revelation of Glarkey, Fairman burns through these books. He does. He reads all nine volumes in a few days. They do seem to be fairly short books, but there's something else going on there. It seems to be the way that he's exposed them, this whole ritualistic aspect of giving him the books and the, the knowledge that's transmitted around them and the location in which he's reading them and everything like that is perhaps priming him. It's quite a well-described experience of him reading them. He sat in his hotel room and there's a mirror so he can, when he glances up, he sometimes sees himself and or perhaps he sees another hand moving in the mirror, it's not quite clear. There's some confusion in his mind that the book is having this strange influence on him as he reads it. They are quite slim volumes that he reads, mm. some with handwritten annotations in the covers, and he conceals them in his safe, in his hotel room safe, which apparently at first is very small and perhaps only big enough to hold one or two volumes, but he progressively seems to fit more and more in there. <laughs> in the story, Fairman talks about he bought nine stout cartons filled with Excelsior, which I don't know what the fuck that is. I'm guessing it's like a box with some padding. But Matt, have you come across this in your book collecting knowledge? I haven't come across the term, but a quick search on Google Images tells me that I definitely have received plenty of these before. 
I think Amazon and DriveThruRPG make a lot of use of these because, boy, have I certainly thrown a lot in my recycling bin over the years. <laughs> Imagine a flat piece of cardboard that's been folded a number of times over so it wraps around the book. But inside that is another layer of cardboard which wraps around the top and the bottom of the book. Yeah. So then you've got this larger piece of cardboard which then effectively acts to protect the book itself in transit. So if you drop it, you don't ding the corners of the book. You're basically digging the extra piece of the base layer of cardboard that sticks out further than the book itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're like an advanced Hermes driver and then you know how to wreck the book even when it's in one of those. Oh, yeah. They just managed to put holes through the flat surface of the bloody thing. <laughs> or drop them in large bodies of water, which seems quite appropriate for this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But the experience as well of reading these books for him seems to be an almost subconscious thing, that there are two things going on at the same time, that he is going through reading the tome, perhaps not necessarily understanding it on a conscious level as he's going through. But at the same time, it's like a carrier signal underneath that is going into his mind and shaping his subconscious, and that's the important part. Which is an approach to mythos tomes that I really like. They're implanting ideas in your head that you don't necessarily understand at the time, that they're having some direct effect on your consciousness without you realising it until it's perhaps too late. Yeah, there's a particularly nice line where he talks exactly that, Scott, where he says he's, and I, I've experienced this where you're reading a book, and I'm sure we all have, where you're reading a book and you kind of lose focus on it and you realise that you've passed the paragraph, but you haven't actually consciously kind of mm. understood what it was. But he talks about doing that and that he feels that, that paragraph has bypassed his conscious mind, but it has entered his subconscious mm. as if some part of it has gone deep within him, which I thought was, uh, yeah, a very cool idea. You've just described every attempt of me attempting to, to read a book ever. But has the contents of that book actually gone into your subconscious matter or have you just been in a daydream and not really taken it in? Depends on the book. Oh, okay. I think for me it's more the latter. But The last revelation of Glarkey opens with an excerpt from an essay written by the protagonist, Lionel Fairman, in which he outlines the publishing history of the revelations of Glarkey. It is possible that no copy of the Revelations of Glarkey still exists anywhere in the world. The only printed edition was published in nine volumes in 1865 by the Matterhorn Press of Highgate in London. A spurious Liverpool edition is unrelated to it and consists of texts fabricated by modern gamesters for use in role-playing games. The Matterhorn set was published for subscribers, supposedly numbering fewer than 200, most of whom are thought to have belonged to cults or occult fellowships. It appears to have been the only work published by Matterhorn Press. So, what about this Liverpool edition, then? Uh, subtle dig there. <laughs> I like that. The idea that there is this spurious version of the, of the Revelations of Glarkey out there that was written for RPGs. Am I missing something in the joke here? I think it's a reference to the fact that the Call of Cthulhu version of the Revelations of Glarkey perhaps differs from what Campbell portrays in the story. And that's something we'll get to in a moment. I just wonder why Liverpool? Well, Campbell comes from Liverpool, so I don't know if that's anything okay. to do with it. But also written for gamesters. <laughs> gamesters, not gamers. Yes, I'm going to refer to myself exclusively as a gamester now. Oh, well, do you remember there was a podcast called The Gamesters in the really? early mid 2000s, around 2005, 2006? You do remember it, Scott. You didn't like it. And I did. <laughs> I don't remember it at all. Oh, it was great. It was fantastic. It was a few guys from down south in the US somewhere. They did interviews with some of the indie game designers of the time whose names are escaping me. And yeah, it was a fun show. I don't know what happened to it. I'm guessing, I think I did look for it a few years ago and it's not easy to find. You liking it and Scott not, that must be a true story then. <laughs> I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Also, when we talked about Glarkey last time and we talked about the presence of an apostrophe or not in the name, mm. I think you mentioned it was removed by 
an editor, Percy Smallbeam. I thought yeah. that was a real person, I think, at the time. <laughs> That's somebody in this story. Yes. Oh, it's like layers of confusion, real <laughs> mixed with fiction. Yes, I was caught out by that one. <laughs> yeah, speaking of the Percy Smallbeam. Fairman notes that this edition was edited by Percy Smallbeam, probably a pseudonym. I mean, it might be. It might be his name. How do we know? <laughs> and based on the writings of an obscure cult from Deep Fall Water, Thomas Lee's sect from the inhabitant of the lake. So Smallbeam is believed to have received this text from a defector from the cult, although other sources suggest that perhaps this propagation of the text was deliberate. Fairman notes that all known copies of the Matterhorn edition were destroyed following John Bull's uh, campaign against Alistair Crowley. Fairman then associates, obviously, this destruction of the tome with this anti-occult hysteria that came up in the 1930s. But it does seem, from what he said, that a number of the other copies, including the one at the Bridgechester University Library, were destroyed long prior to that. So... This seems to be this thing that we see in the mythos over and over again, that people encounter mythos tomes and are so revolted by the things that they find in them that their immediate reaction is to destroy them. So are you saying the Liverpool edition might have been responsible for the satanic panic? <laughs> One can hope. The tome spans, depending on which volume or which edition you're looking at, 9, 11 or 12 volumes. Each has a name hinting at its contents. The last revelation of Galaki provides the names for these Matterhorn volumes. Volume 1, On Conjuration. Volume 2, On the Purposes of Night. Volume 3, Of the World as Lair. Volume 4, Of the Secrets of the Stars. Volume 5, Of Humanity as Chrysalis. Volume 6, of Things Seen by the Moon. Volume 7, Of the Symbols the Universe Shows. Volume 8, Of the Dreaming of Creation. And Volume 9, Of the Uses of the Dead. Now these are really evocative names, aren't they? <laughs> that last one should have been Necrophilia 101. <sighs> He does talk in the story about how some of the volumes have cropped up individually and have been particularly notorious, and Of the Uses of the Dead was one of those. I think Of Things Seen by the Moon is particularly good, yeah. Yeah. The books are small, bound in black leather. Each has a different colophon embossed on the front cover, depicting images like a spiderish entity clutching the world, a lantern emitting rays of black light. The moon with an eye for a crater, a body shedding its own bones, a pair of hands presenting an open coffin, and the constellations of the night sky forming a face. Hmm. The volumes don't have indices. Yep, definitely role-playing game terms. <laughs> the books Fairman finds are heavily annotated, apparently in ballpoint pen. Fucking heathens. Each by a different person, and all of them defacing another book. Ah! My inner bibliomancer just rages when people do this, even with highlighter pens. I'd love you to be collecting these books, Max. Like, you don't know if there's nine or 11 or 12 of them. <laughs> a lot of them have been written in, you know, they've got different titles. It's going to be a nightmare, isn't it? Honestly, I, I had this problem in real life when I was trying to find definitive editions of the Arabian Nights or the, the Book of the Thousand and One Nights. That there's so many different editions out there, and I finally found one that's 16 volumes long mm -hmm. that has the initial 10 for the 1001 stories, and then a supplemental six volumes after that. Oh, wow. Do you get one volume? Do you get like a four-volume set or a three-volume? There's so many different editions of that, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. collection. Yeah. But personally, I like the idea of annotations, that books like this are meant to be used books in academia in general, books that are conveying ideas. And by having annotations and marginal notes and so on in there, you're getting the insights and ideas of other people in there. It then sort of becomes this ongoing conversation, even more of a living document, which where this is 
I think, really quite literally a living document in the case of the Revelations of Glarki that seems entirely appropriate. You see, the me who likes a nice pristine book would just say, make your notes on a different piece of paper, write them up and publish another <laughs> fucking book. Don't deface the original. Go. <laughs> One of these annotations warns, do not trust all which is herein. Some visions were imperfectly set down, and some came damaged at the source. Some were spoiled by the minds employed to convey them, while others were misinterpreted by the editor. Not the Bible nor the Quran is so worthy of restoration. So that then almost goes against the idea of these being the direct revelations of Glarki. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think your statement about them being a direct channel from, you know, the God, if, if you want to call it that, I think, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I think all of these people writing these things could be compared to prophets or disciples mm. writing real world religious books. Many of those would claim to have a direct channel to God, perhaps. It is still being interpreted, I think, by the human hand. But then again, maybe the person writing this comment that you just read aloud is mistaken. So who knows? But also from outside the fiction itself, this does seem to be Campbell perhaps changing his mind about this between writing The Inhabitant of the Lake and writing The Last Revelation of Glarki, or at least refining the ideas, because it seems to be in the original story much more of a direct transmission from Glarki, and here we're seeing something that is more interpreted, perhaps. Hmm. The Revelations serves a number of purposes. It trains mages to become instruments for Glarki in his remaking of reality. It can also connect the reader's psyche to Glarki and his followers, transforming them in mind and body. Which we very much see in this story. The information held in the volumes almost seems to be alive. As Fairman reads them, he gets the impression that the volumes of the Revelations were carrying on a dialogue in his head, composing annotations there. Which is quite a chilling idea. Mm. The books are talking to each other in your head. <laughs> so all those tomes you read, yeah, they all like rattle around in your skull. I was thinking someone has to do brain surgery. They uh, take off the top of his skull and they just find some graffiti-like uh, annotations inside the, the inside of his skull, yeah. Let me out. <laughs> Campbell was here. The twelfth volume of the Revelations of Glarki appears to be an addition to the original ones written by the cult, and this is explained in cold print. You probably won't know the Revelations of Glarki. It's a sort of Bible written under supernatural guidance. There were only eleven volumes, but this is the twelfth, written by a man at the top of Mercy Hill, guided through his dreams. Now, this then seems to place it apart from the ones that were directly inspired by Glarki, that it is somehow part of the overall tome or part of the set. But at the same time, it has a different provenance and a different author and different inspiration. In this case, the inspiration seems to be very much a Golanak, who we will discuss shortly. Now let's take a look at the Revelations of Glarki, the Mythos Tome, in Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game. It's the Liverpool edition. Done. <laughs> yeah, but we get 12 different titles here, don't we? From the Cthulhu Companion, we get Book 1, Glarki. Book 2, His Undead Servants. Book 3, Biatis. Book 4, I Hort. Book 5, Groth. Book 6, Shubnigarath. Book 7, The Shan. Eight, the creatures from Zikotl. Book nine, Daeloth. Book ten, Mgala. Book eleven, Crystallizers of Dreams. And finally, book twelve, Egolanak. What's book ten? Mgala. What's that? I never heard of that. I had to look that up in the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia before we started. It's a rare one that actually wasn't created by Campbell. Mm. The only one on the list that wasn't created by Campbell, I think, apart from Shubnikarath. It appears in Swamp Thing. Mm, created by Len Wine. Yeah, by its uh, first appearance. Basically, it's a creature of tentacles and entrails. 
Yummy. Well, that narrows it down. <laughs> it's kind of the go-to great old one type entity that DC Comics use. Right. Because they couldn't have too many tentacles per square inch, they might get sued. But put entrails in there and you're fine. So this list of tomes is really quite different from what Campbell presents. But I guess this is because this list predates the last revelation of Glarkey and must have been written by someone who had taken the details that were there in The Inhabitant of the Lake and Cold Print and decided to expand upon them, as we do for gaming, mm. and had taken them in a, a somewhat different direction. So obviously Campbell's come along and contradicted all of this, but we're looking at the idea that these are like two different editions anyway. So I guess there's no reason why the 12 volumes couldn't have these titles, but the Matterhorn uh, press editions, the nine volumes have got the ones that Campbell specified in his novella. There is also a bit that the Keeper Companion goes into why there might be variations between all of them as well. So there's a nice kind of get-out clause that they put in there as well. They provide a short one-line description about the contents of each one. The only one they really have much else to say about is uh, Groth, which is where they say that it might have been the inspiration for the Nemesis legend. Mm. But other than that, it's pretty much, it does what it says on the tin, go read the title, done. With a couple of spells or one or two spells, depending on each volume, that it suggests are in, in each book. Yeah, I think Groth features the name of a planet, right? It's a planet-eating great old one that destroyed the planet where the Shan came from originally. Yeah. Mm. So as Mythos tomes go, this is a fairly heavyweight one. First reading, Cthulhu Mythos plus five percentiles. So it's not an insignificant tome. Is there anything in the game that conveys the sort of living nature of it. There's a bit in the, I'll say, The Keeper's Companion, the old one, volume one, published back in the year 2000, that details the differences between the original manuscripts, the published editions, the 12th volume, and other benefits and effects alongside them. Particularly where it says about other benefits and effects. Reading the original 11 books grants two checks in an occult skill. Reading the published version, the nine volume one, grants but only a single check. Some readers of the Revelations are unwilling to let the book end and continue to fill it with more chapters based on their own knowledge of the mythos. Oh. As such, new volumes of the book continue to be written. So it is very much a living book that it mm. very much inspires the readers to add their own annotations, which is what you, we could get away with saying that they're in different handwritings, that there are these variations between the different copies you find, whether like some are in notebooks or ring binders, depending on where, where you found them. It's a nice get out clause that allows you to say, well, this volume 10 might be different from this, this other volume 10. The fanfic of Glarky. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's sort of what Volume 12 is. Volume 12 is fanfic. Of the worst kind, yeah. <laughs> now let's take a look at the hand that feeds Egolinac. <laughs> Don't bite the hand that feeds you, or feeds on you. Some people may not know about this. So what is Egolinac? Well, physically, a Golanak is this large humanoid entity. He's described as being flabby and fleshy. He doesn't have a head. And as the song says, he, on his hands, he's got orifices. He basically has these devouring mouths on his hands. But there's a bit more to it than that. You know where some people say that I've got the body of a god, shame it's Buddha? even though Buddha isn't a god. <laughs> I've always twisted it to, I've got the body of a god, shame it's Gigolanak. <laughs> so Gigolanak first appeared in Campbell's short story called Print. The story follows a rather seedy character called Sam Strutt, who is an enthusiastic collector of sadomasochistic literature, and he's scouring the second-hand bookshops of Britchester. For the latest Dan Brown. <laughs> nothing that wholesome. Actually, no, nothing that unwholesome. <laughs> Strutt meets a seedy-looking man who offers to take him to a bookshop with a more exciting collection. This turns out to be a grubby, disorganised and unstaffed shop identified only by a sign reading American Books Bought and Sold. Because America's the only place you can get stuff like this. 
Some creepy stuff happens in the shop, including a muffled cry and sounds of movement from the apparently deserted office. Despite this, Strutt finds some choice books. And when we say choice books, I think you know what we're talking about. His Mm. guide encourages him to take them and pay next time. This is all very strange. I've never been in a shop where it says, just come back and pay next time. When Strutt returns to the shop later, he meets someone who seems to be the bookseller, the owner of the shop, who has a head like a half-inflated balloon. This bookseller offers him a rare and what he says is a genuinely forbidden book, the twelfth volume of the Revelations of Glarkey. And this half-inflated balloon Mm. image is something we see in the last Revelation of Glarkey, the story by Campbell. These people, he describes them as having odd squishy features. When they press a button with their thumb, it kind of spreads out into a big white pad. He describes them as having big shoes on, and perhaps they haven't got shoes on. And this head like a half-inflated balloon. Yeah, a kind of weird bodily changes. It's not just that. The followers of Glarkey in uh, Gulshar in the last revelation of Glarkey also all have oddly kind of mismatched physical features. It's like their hands will be too big and their feet will be too small or their heads will be the wrong size for their torso or their arms will be too short. And It's like they're made up of different parts from different bodies, all of which, like you say, are, are spongy and apparently quite boneless looking at times and it's difficult to tell where their fingernails begin. Uh, the, maybe they don't have fingernails, maybe it's just the outlines of them and their flesh. And yeah, it's, it's all very odd. Well, I get to use Scott's favourite phrase, and it's not just that, Scott. Because <laughs> they're kind of weirdly moist and damp. Whenever he shakes hands with them, he's they're kind of cold and well, not cold, but they're clammy. You know, as if they're sweaty or wet. And when they, he notices their fingerprints on things a lot that they've left mm. like moist fingerprints around, which is kind of weird. Well, when you've got a body mass index like your Golanek, you're going to perspire a fair bit, aren't you? <laughs> fair enough. As Strut skims the volume. He has a disconcerting feeling of moving outside his body, pursued below the earth by a bloated, glowing figure. The book tells of Ugolanak. Beyond a gulf in the subterranean night, a passage leads to a wall of massive bricks, and beyond the wall rises Ugolanak, to be served by the tattered, eyeless figures of the dark. Long as he slept beyond the wall, and those which crawl over the bricks scuttle across his body, never knowing it to be Yagolanak. But when his name is spoken or read, he comes forth to be worshipped, or to feed and take on the shape and soul of those he feeds upon. For those who read of evil and search for its form within their minds call forth evil, and so may Yagolanak return to walk among men. Now, it's interesting, when we talked about Haster a while back, we talked about the idea that's come out of gaming Mm. that mentioning Haster's name somehow summons him, which isn't there in the fiction at all. Or or saying it three times, right, Mm -hmm. is the the thing with Haster. Yeah. But here we actually do have a deity that can be summoned just by speaking or reading his name. Once. Just the once. Mm. (laughs) But reading it in the correct or perhaps incorrect way, right? So not just as we say it, but there's a particular way to say it, apparently. Mm. The bookseller invites Strutt to become Egolanak's priest, seeming to transform as he does so. The voice was deepening. Now it was an overwhelming bass. The other swung around behind the desk. He seemed taller. His head struck the bulb, setting shadows peering from the corners and withdrawing, and peering again. You're interested? His expression was intense, as far as it could be made out, for the light moved darkness in the hollows of his face, as if the bone structure were melting visibly. God strikes me as being a bit like Lurch there. Mm. Yes, only fleshier. The bookseller reveals that he made the same offer to the original owner of the bookshop. I told him... You may be the high priest of Agolanak. You will call down the shapes of night to worship him at the times of year. 
you will prostrate yourself before him, and in return you will survive when the earth is cleared off for the great old ones. You will go beyond the rim to what stirs out of the light. Sounds like a good offer to me. He hasn't talked about pay. He hasn't talked about benefits. He hasn't really talked about hours. I want to know if this comes with a decent pension plan. Or if you get dental as well. Well, if you don't have a head, you don't need that. Actually, you do for the, the mouths and your hands. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh. When the owner refused, this new bookseller killed him. Similarly, he killed the tramp who let Strut here before he went mad after seeing the mouths. Terrified, Strut threatens to burn the book. The bookseller reacts by accelerating his transformation. Strut saw why the shadow on the frosted pane yesterday had been headless, and he screamed as the desk was thrust aside by the towering naked figure on whose surface still hung rags of the tweed suit. Strut's last thought was an unbelieving conviction that this was happening because he had read the revelations somewhere. Someone had wanted this to happen to him. It wasn't playing fair. He hadn't done anything to deserve this. But before he could scream out his protest, his breath was cut off as the hands descended on his face and the wet red mouths opened in their palms. Hmm. I like the beginning and the end of this story, but even though it's, well, think about what, maybe a third to a half of the length of The Inhabitant of the Lake, it's quite short. It feels a hell of a long longer because that middle passage is quite irrelevant in the story. It's pretty much the beginning mm. and the end are all you need to read about this. I don't think it's a great story. Yeah, it's not one of his best, but it's got some great moments in it. It's got those good little scenes in it, but yeah, I just think it, it could have been condensed a lot better to just focus in on those scenes as as a short story. But I do like the whole setup with Strut wandering around these secondhand bookshops because I mean, those of us of a certain age have all been there wandering around towns to these sort of strange, often seedy bookshops, really badly disorganised secondhand shops filled with all sorts of strange things that you'd never anticipate encountering. And yeah, it feels very kind of rooted and real to me in that respect. It does remind me a little bit of going around Hey on Why even though there's not so many bookshops there these days, because the uh, the bottom fell out of the second-hand bookshop market a while back. And also a lot of the ones that are still left there seem to have upped their game and actually organised stuff, so it's not just piles of stuff all over the place. They actually have shelves that are ordered and sections in Mm. the right places and this whole weird, blasphemous way of organising books. That's just not right. I know. So what about Egolanak in Call of Cthulhu? I love some of the stuff that's been done for him, even though he doesn't appear that much again, a bit like um, what we mentioned with Glarky in the last episode, that he has very limited screen time in games. Mm. He's pretty much in the uh, Goatswood collection that we mentioned before, but I can't think of really anywhere else he actually appears in. We get an entry on him in Malleus, right? Malleus Monstrorum. Yeah, I was thinking more scenarios. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he features in a few scenarios, but nothing that I can actually recall playing. I have heard people talking about Love's Lonely Children a number of times, mostly in terms of content warnings, that it's meant to be one of the more extreme Call of Cthulhu scenarios out there. But I must admit, I've never actually read or played it, so I don't have an opinion on it at all. I just know that people talk about it in almost hushed tones. I mean, that's from an old collection, isn't it? The stars are right. Yeah. What did you make of the entries, Matt, in Malleus? <laughs> I love where it goes into his cult, where it describes the possible blessings that the god can bestow upon you. The first one there, hand of God. <laughs> the mouths that can open in your palms that do a pretty horrific one. Oh, well, actually, I, read, I misread that. I thought it was 1d10 plus 2. It's 1d4 plus 2 damage, so maybe not quite as good as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, but you got two of them. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, it's when he puts a hand either side of someone's head and then bites and crushes. 
I do wonder about the physicality of this, though, because you've got hands in your mouths. When they eat stuff, where does it go? I had exactly <laughs> the same question when I had a mouth <laughs> opening my knee in a certain cult game way back in the day. <laughs> It's almost like this stuff isn't really real. But, you know, you just kind of have to use your imagination, I guess, if you really must. You have a get-out that Scott used. It goes somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You end up with really big hands. But these are role-playing games, Paul. There's no place for imagination. Exactly. What was I thinking? There's also another possible blessing or power called possession, whereby a person is slowly overtaken by Egolanak and slowly transformed. So they have to make a power, I think an extreme power roll, or they begin to lose sanity and lose points of intelligence and power. And as they do so each day, they can make another extreme power roll. So at some point you can end up partially transformed, but then throw off the transformation, which appeals to me, you know, that you're kind of in this half transformed state. It does, in the rules, sort of say that you can then regain your power and int, but, you know, it doesn't really talk about those physical changes, whether they stay or you manage to throw those off. So you could end up in the state, perhaps you have been transformed and you have got the mouth in your hand, but then you manage to get better in yourself, but you've still got the hand, you've still got the mouth. <laughs> it doesn't say that, but that's what I'm imagining. That kind of has me uh, thinking of a potential scenario seed right there where you've got uh, someone who has survived that transformation, mm. but they've bloated up like an avatar or one of the other potential blessings has. So you have someone that's on your street that a few years back basically gained a shed load of weight by eating one too many Twinkies, so, uh, so they said, and then goes through this whole health kick to slim right the hell back down again. But every so often you just hear scream coming from their bedroom at night while their hand is talking to the rest <laughs> of the house. There is an element of that that's going on at the moment in the Grizzly Peaks radio arc that we're playing, where one of the player characters was touched by a Golanak at some stage and is a much fuller figure of a man than he used to be. But think of it, you get extra size, it gives you extra hit points. <laughs> also in the Malleus, we get the servants of Egolanak, which are these little minions, these whispering horrors, they're called. Notably, they're very small. They're child size or baby size. They don't have any eyes. I imagine them as a bit like crawling white maggots. And they have a corrupting influence on people. They whisper to them. And if you're subject to their whispers over a course of days, you can become corrupted through the loss of sanity and, and so on. And induced to commit horrific acts. And this sort of leads me to as you mentioned, Scott, with the content warning of, of one of the scenarios that features Egolanak. I think the whole thing about Egolanak seems to be this depravity, mm. this moral depravity that's linked with Egolanak. So if you want to manifest that in the game, we're used to monsters that, you know, kill people or corrupt people, but there's particularly, there's this depravity. So if we want to personify that in the game, well, it, it is extreme. So how do we feel about that? You know, how do we feel about dealing with those issues of extreme depravity in the game? Or do we avoid it? I mean, it depends what you mean by depravity. Well, I'm thinking, notably, it's like sexual, isn't it, in the story? Sexual, I don't have a problem with. Uh, the sadomasochistic parts of this story, again, I don't have a problem with. Where I tend to draw the line in my own scenarios is sexual violence, particularly rape and uh, sexual assault. I never put those in my scenarios and I don't want those in the games I play. But I don't see that that is an essential part of a Golanak. It is, as you say, much more about the corrupting influence. It's about... I guess the idea in the story is that somehow certain types of ideas or fiction or whatever prime people for exposure to a Golanak. And this may be sexual, but it may be, I, I don't know, you could even have philosophical arguments in there. Perhaps you could have the same kind of stuff turning up in a book on antinatalism. You could have it in political tracts, and I've certainly used something similar in some of my scenarios. 
Yeah, I was thinking that if I were doing this in a game, I might even try twisting that around, perhaps taking a leaf out of Jonathan Carroll's The Land of Laughs, having a children's author putting a lot of this stuff in there, stuff that on the surface of it all looks almost playful, Hey, boys and girls, it's time to play with Mr. Iggy. Look at him. He's so funny. He waddles around and he doesn't have a head and so on. And But then, you know, there's, again, this sort of almost like carrier wave underneath it all that is just bringing unwholesome ideas in that you know, aren't necessarily visible there on the surface. And it isn't until you have repeated exposure that you're starting to notice Perhaps some of the strange little things that are going on in some of the background drawings of the the children's book or some of the double meanings of the words and stuff like that. I mean, that's sounding pretty concerning right now, Scott, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you said there were certain things you'd avoid. I'd say, you know, that it does um, sort of suggest to me that the darkest things that you don't want to think about. Well, I don't know if I need to reel them off, but... Mm. What about you, Matt? How would you deal with these things or deal with avoiding them? Similar to Scott, I think it depends on what particular form it takes. I'm very much reluctant to go down the kind of the sexual angle. But the one thing that did leap to mind, actually, I love like the twisting the innocence of kids and combine that. I was thinking originally you could potentially have an ideological clash, like something that would fit quite well into a World War Cthulhu Cold War would be a, a view from one side of the Iron Curtain to the other, where you've got, say, a communist view thinking, all oh, these decadent, immoral Americans or Western countries in this and their capitalism, or vice versa, that you see one side as being morally repugnant to the other. Hmm. That could be one thing. But in a modern setting, combine something that actually came up in a different discussion was Barney the Purple Dinosaur in Guantanamo Bay being used as a torture method against subjects there, like a method of sensory overload where I'm thinking that if you have someone who has been put in this kind of situation and is experiencing torture with maybe someone who maybe likes their job a little too much, that the poor sods that are sat there in front of these TVs might start seeing this dancing headless figure instead of a big purple children's character. Or the people who are being subject to it or the people who are doing the torturing? Uh, Probably the subjects, because then you're in a a pretty much shitty situation already. Mm. If they are being subjected to it, then who's going to believe them? And that's just helplessness and isolation, which is always a good breeding ground for horror. It seems to me like a good... This is rich for people doing morally corrupt acts, having been influenced by Egolinac. And a great kind of kicker for a, a scenario might be some form of blackmail against somebody you know discovering blackmail somebody's carrying out blackmail it's quite a that's a mundane real world activity that could well expose things that you know investigating that blackmail or becoming involved in that blackmail could unearth all manner of acts that have been inspired by Golanak. one of the other unusual aspects of a Golanak that struck me from the story is the way that he kind of blurs the line between priest and avatar in a way that I don't know that I've seen in any other mythos deities, that by accepting him, you seem to, to some extent at least, become him. Mm. And notably, in the rules, there's, I think you get a sand loss for seeing Egolinac, but an even greater sand loss for seeing somebody transformed into Egolinac. Mm. There's very much this idea of, like you said, an avatar of him becoming someone and transforming so their kind of head disappears and mouths grow on their hands isn't this just like a very easy to kind of grasp image but a kind of a, a weird creepy image i can remember when i was at middle school being shown images of i think early explorers showing images you know of people in the countries that they were traveling to and they were showing men without heads but with faces in their midriff Mm, yes these kind of primitive images of people and i can remember being quite frightened by that not that i thought they existed but it was just a a scary image as a child and this is somehow reminiscent of that to me i certainly as well remember 
coming across a horror comic in the early 70s, which must have been written, or potentially was written by someone who'd read Cold Print, because this was a few years afterwards, where there was some serial killer who was on the loose and people kept finding chunks of flesh taken out of the necks of his victims even though they'd been strangled and the big revelation at the end was someone taking their gloves off and there were these toothy hands in the middle of their palms. I mean I guess if you're grabbed by Egolinac on the neck it would look like twin vampire bites on each side perhaps. Could be misleading. Oh I'd say Big chunks of flesh taken out, yeah. No, no, but if you wanted to have that oh, yeah, image yeah. of sort of almost like red herring, then mm. you could play it that way. The worst love bite you can possibly get. Yes. <laughs> but I'm also taken by the connection of a Golanak to the Revelations of Glarky. So we've got this 12th volume that was written under inspiration by a different author that connects potentially with the other volumes of the Revelations of Glarky, but also acts as a method of transmission for Egolinac. It did make me wonder that between this and the varying editions of uh, the Revelations of Glarky and the different annotations and so on, whether these variations and these editions then potentially lead to conflict amongst scholars of the mythos and then potentially religious schisms. We've seen this enough times where you've got different versions of religious texts or even different interpretations of religious texts. And here you've got these texts that are supposed to be divinely inspired, but they're all different. So do you have competing cults of Glarki or even the Golanak out there who are sort of saying, well, no, my annotated version is the right one, and here it tells of the true nature of a Golanak, and someone else is holding up their hand-annotated version saying, but this contradicts it completely. Well, I mean, as you say, Scott, we, we don't need to look at the real world and see that we don't need annotated versions. We can have <laughs> yes. the same, ver exactly the same version of it, the one book that people will kill each other over and fight for generations and centuries over. Yeah. So I think it's almost inevitable with something like this, you're going to get various sects that are at war with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great plot hook for a scenario right there. Hmm. I'd potentially use the revelations as a an intercult weapon or a weapon that the cult have deployed deliberately so that if this collection does fall into the hands of someone who isn't meant to get it, that they are removed by their own curiosity. That, like say you've got in the um, the inhabitant of the lake where you have this whole collection that's in the basement. If that was to fall into hands that weren't supposed to have it, then the cult have left volume 12 in there as a volume they don't read themselves, but they know that some poor hapless investigator is going to read it and then become <laughs> an avatar of Yugolak and there's no more problem anymore. <laughs> or likewise, you have this war between different cults who are saying, no, this is the one true version. No, this is the one true version. Have you got volume 12? Do you want to have a read of this and then tell me what you think afterwards? And suddenly there's no more problem. Or alternatively, there's a very different problem. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people through a variety of mouths. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a few new people to thank by name. Yeah, thank you very much to Sigrid. And also thank you very much to David Patterson. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, please do let people know whether this means sharing a review somewhere where you get podcasts, posting on social media, or writing your own blasphemous additions to some tome that's out there that draws people into our sect. Whatever it is, we would be extremely grateful. What blasphemy is this? Okay, well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. 
blasphemoustomes.com. On his hands he's got orifices. On his hands he's got orifices. On his hands he's got orifices, and he hasn't got a head. Oh, on his hands he's got orifices. Oh, on his hands he's got orifices. Oh, on his hands he's got orifices, and he hasn't got a head. 